Thank you while you're being seated. If you'll find your place, Mark's Gospel chapter number 15. We're coming down to the short rows of Mark. I don't know. I need to look at this in a little more detail, but probably another two, three, not four messages, certainly, out of the remaining text that we have in Mark chapter number 16. Been on this journey for quite some time. Hope you've enjoyed what God has had to say to us through Mark's gospel. Um, Got my whiteboard up here because I'm low-tech, a low-tech redneck. And sometimes I just need to take you to school. And the only way I know to do that is to bring my trusty whiteboard up here. So here we go. Uh, We'll try to demonstrate a few things today. But let's look at this text, and uh, man, it's quite a lengthy passage. It really begins in verse number 1, runs uh, through verse number 41, and of course we're talking about what everything has been building towards, and that is the cross, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am going to leave uh, 1 through 15, probably for grace group time. We'll fill in some gaps there, and we're going to pick up today in verse number 16. So, here we go. By the way, this is, this text is just, man, it just evokes every bit of emotion and spirituality that you can possibly imagine as Mark gives us a detailed account of what happened to the Lord Jesus. I was telling Colin just prior to worship service that Texts that describe the cross, and I know this is going to sound this is going to sound crazy for a preacher to say, but they are my least favorite passages to preach because this was gruesome, and I, it's hard for me to fathom human beings doing something like this to another human being, especially a perfect human being one who was totally innocent. I mean, you know, just just the scourging that he underwent prior to the cross probably would have killed most human beings and indeed did. The only reason it didn't kill the Lord Jesus is because he was the God-man. But, I mean, these texts just show the, the depth of the depravity of human beings. And but for God's grace, there go you and I, putting ourselves in the place of these perpetrators of this horrible crime against the sinless, perfect, and innocent Son of God. One of the things that, well, you know, in, in Brazil, as we deal with the quilombolas and it being a a non-reading culture, when we go in and present the Bible, everything is done through story form. Uh, So all of these passages have to be memorized. Normally when we have a team on the field, we bring a team, a church team from the U.S. When we were at this point of the cross where everything comes together, and we usually start way back training uh, people on that church team to tell this story. And it's a rare day when the person who is telling this story from memory as a story doesn't have a hard time in telling it. Because when you tell it like that and you hear it first-hand account, it just brings all of the impact and weight of that text to bear upon you. Let's do that today as we read it. Notice with me in verse number 16. I've got to get rid, excuse me, of a peppermint in my mouth, or somebody's going to have to come do the Heimlich maneuver on me in a while. So you'd probably rather see me do that than you had see Ben do the Heimlich maneuver on me. I'll pick that up later. Here we go, verse number 16. The soldiers took him, that is Jesus, away into the place, uh, into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews! They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him, 
and kneeling and bowing before him. After they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him and they led him out to crucify him. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And then they brought him to the place Galgotha, which is translated place of a skull. And they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. And it was the third hour, that is about nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, And he was numbered with the transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. When the sixth hour came, that is about 12 o'clock, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour or three o'clock. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him to drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last and, said, and he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also some women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the less, and Joses and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Man, what a scene. The price of your salvation and the price of my salvation. But beyond that, I think that we can make a case for the fact that the cross occupies the central place in all of time and in all of eternity. I mean, stop and think about it. You know, Paul in the book of Acts said to some folk, this thing wasn't done in a corner. I mean, this was out front in public. Not only was it not done in a corner... But everything that had taken place in world history, especially salvation history from creation up till now, pointed to this event, the cross of Jesus Christ. Everything since the cross in salvation history has flown from the cross. So it does occupy a center place in time. But I think we can say more than that, it occupies center stage in just about every academic discipline in everything that goes on in this time in this space-time existence as well is as well as in all of eternity. It certainly occupies the center place in theology. It occupies center stage in philosophy. In history and in anthropology, the cross looms at the center. Even in language, the cross reflects 
its central place as just the language flows from the original into Latin and then out into all of the families of languages. For instance, let me show you why I say the cross occupies a center place in all of these areas of life and in all time and in all eternity. But let me just use the field that I know best and that is linguistics. For instance, here is the root word as it flows to us from Latin. It's the word C-R-U for cross. Dane is here and he and I have struggled most of our life to learn Portuguese and he will tell you that in Portuguese you just add a Z to that and you have cruz. Uh, there's a lot of places, even in Spanish, Santa Cruz. Well, that's referring to the cross, and there's your root word. But let's look at this as it comes to us down through the family of languages. You take the root for cross, and you put an X on the end of it. What do you have? You have crux. You've heard this word before. When somebody says, give me the crux of it, here's what they're saying. They're saying, give me the heart of the matter. Give me the central theme. So even from this root word, as we add letters to it, we can see that we're dealing with the center of things. We're dealing with central facts. Let's uh, let's look at another word and see how this continues to work through the language. Um, Check out this word. What is it? Crucial. What is your root word there? Your root word, again, is cross. And what does crucial mean? Well, crucial simply means... An indispensable element. You see what I'm saying? You see, you see, you see? This doesn't just keep itself contained within the verbiage of theology and the Bible, but it pervades even our common language today just because of of the very nature of what the cross is. Let me give you a couple more. Check this one out. What's your root word? What is the word itself? Excruciating. And that word, when you put the prefix on it and everything else, it means literally out of the cross. So when somebody says that it was excruciating, and what are we normally talking about when we use the word excruciating? Pain, always. You see how this pervades language and how this idea of the cross occupies A sinner's place even in language, even when we're unaware of it. This root word, C-R-U. So I want to speak to you today on the subject of the centrality of the cross. Now check out as we get back to our text, and we may put up some more words here a little bit later as we play this nerd game as uh, uh, only us folk who are interested in language does. The centrality of the cross. What is it that this text teaches us about the centrality of the cross? Well, I think the first thing we can say is the centrality of the cross is seen in the people who were assembled there. The people who were assembled there. I mean, when you look at this and you see this crowd that was gathered that day at the cross at Golgotha, I think what we have to, uh, uh, what we have to say is this, is that every person who has ever drawn a breath or who will draw a breath will have to deal with the cross of Jesus Christ. You've got to. I mean, there was a hodgepodge of people there uh, that day. And if indeed this is what the Bible reports it to be, since God has put all His eggs in one basket, that is the basket of the cross, since God the Father has chosen to send His only begotten Son to die this excruciating death on Calvary's cross, hear me, you are not going to get away with not dealing with the cross personally. You cannot. Listen, you may run from it in this life, but I want to tell you something. You'll deal with it in the next because it is central not only in time, but it's central in eternity. There's nothing that anybody can do to escape the reality of the cross. And what's your verdict as you come to the cross of Jesus Christ? Well, if this were a grace group, what I would do is I'd tell you to look at this text and take your pen and go through and underline. Every time you see Mark talk about another individual or another group of individuals who was at the cross that day. So what I want to do for us is go through and pull out as many as I can in the time that we have allotted and we want to see what their response 
to the central figure in all time and eternity is, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. Check this out. Number one, there was a man there named Simon. Verse number 21 tells us, And Simon was there out of compulsion. He was where? He was at the cross that day out of compulsion. Now what do I mean by compulsion? I mean that he was there not because he got up that morning and said, Hey, I think I'm going to go down to Golgotha and watch them torture somebody today on a cross. No, he just got caught up in the crowd perhaps and as he was trying to get out of there, a Roman soldier looked at him and said, Ho, you're not going anywhere. And check out what verse number 21 says. They pressed into service. That word means that they can just take him and say, as an official representative of the Roman government, I am putting you into this posse and your job now is to carry the cross of this man. Now why did Simon have to carry the cross? Well, it's because of the scourging that he just underwent. Man, I hate to read historical accounts of scourging because folk like Josephus and and other historians in that day described what would happen when somebody was scourged with this Roman whip that had pieces of bone and metal and rock embedded in it. The accounts say that most people who were scourged had their innards, their, 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 their guts just to fall out because... That thing would break through the flesh. Bones would be showing. And after enduring a scourging, who can carry a cross? It's amazing that he even survived it. And now he can't carry his cross physically. So they press into service this man in verse number 21 named Simon who was from Cyrene. So you see, Simon wasn't there because he wanted to go. Simon was there because he was forced to go. But I bet you... If you could talk to Simon today, he would say the greatest thing that ever happened to me was being forced into service by a Roman soldier. Because it took me to Calvary's cross. Hey, you know, we always joke about this. Folks saying, you know, I was drugged to church. That's not a bad thing. But we talk about it as if it was. Hey, if you can drag somebody to the cross, I say drag their honey, huh? Because I'm telling you, if you can drag somebody to the cross they will at least see truth that they would not see had they not been drawn to the foot of the cross. So here Simon was, and he was, compul- he was under compulsion. He had to be there. He was pressed into service by the Roman cohorts that day. Now notice what happened to Simon because he was there. Howbeit, he was there out of compulsion. Number one, I think the Bible tells us that it changed his future. And can I say to you, Anytime you have an encounter with the cross of Jesus Christ, something's going to change. If it doesn't change, then you really didn't have a genuine encounter with the truth of the centrality of the cross of Jesus Christ. Check this out. Let let me show you this. And it's in Acts chapter number 13. And we have some pretty good historical documents which suggest that this was the same man. And I want to tell you, it's not a stretch at all to say that it was the same man. Check out Simon who was there that day and he was forced to carry the cross of Jesus. Had no choice in the matter. The Roman soldiers forced him to do it. And now look what happened several months later. There's this church, as you know, down in Antioch. And it's the first missionary church. And notice how the Bible describes it. Notice what the Bible says who was there. Now there were in Antioch, in verse 1 of of Acts chapter 13, there, there were in Antioch in the church that was there prophets... Teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene. Do you see that person right there, Uh, 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 Simeon? Guess who that more than likely was? It was this same guy who was forced to carry the cross of Jesus Christ. It changed his life and his future was different because of it. Now here he is, a church leader in the very first missionary church down in Antioch. Boy, I'm telling you, when you have an encounter with the cross of Jesus Christ, your future looks different than your past, does it not? And here was old Simon. His future was different. But not only was Simon's future different, it changed his future, but it also changed his family. Now check this out. I want you to see this. Um, Look with me in verse 21. Why would Mark do this? He says... 
that Simon of Cyrene, and he puts in parentheses, or we put in parentheses, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now why would he do that if the people to whom he was writing did not know Alexander and Rufus? Well again, I told you I was going to take you to school today. Let me take you to New Testament backgrounds and deal with something that we call providence. And simply what that is is a fancy word that means to whom did Mark pen this letter because, or this gospel? Because when these gospel writers wrote, they weren't just writing to everybody in general. They had a, an audience in specific to whom they were writing. And this is what we know about the gospel of Mark. Mark was writing to a church over in Rome that was undergoing severe persecution at the hands of the emperors. Now, guess who was over there in that church in Rome? I'm so glad you asked because I want to show you. Check this out in Romans chapter number 16. And now you'll see why Mark, knowing that he was writing to the Roman church, knowing who was there in the Roman church, puts this parenthetical statement as he identifies Simon. He says he's the father of Alexander and Rufus, whom y'all know. So check it out. Look with me in verse uh, in chapter 16 and verse number 13. Look what Paul says as he closes his letter to the Roman church. He says, greet Rufus. Now who is that? You see, his family was changed forever because Simon went to the cross that day. Changed his family. Changed his kids. And now here Rufus is in Rome and he's a pillar of the church in Rome and he's so prominent that Mark figures that everybody to whom he's writing this gospel over there in Rome is automatically going to know who Rufus is when he mentions his name. And now look what Paul does in Romans chapter 16. Greet Rufus. And how does Paul describe him? Look what he says. A choice man in the Lord. Hey dad. Hey moms. You want your family to be different in the future? Come to the cross. Amen. Have an encounter with the truth, the centrality of the cross of Jesus Christ. Not only did it change his kids, but apparently it changed Simon's wife too. Check this out. Look what, look what Paul said. Greek Rufus, a choice man in the Lord. Also, his mother... And she was such a remarkable person until apparently she had taken Paul and played the role of his mother as well. And Paul says, greet Rufus, his mother, and also mine. Talking about the same person. Son, do you see how that family was changed because old Simon was forced to go to the cross one day? Wow. Well, check this out. I got to run. I got a crowd to get through that was at the cross that day. Number one, Simon was there out of compulsion. But number two, I had to lump all of these together and I simply call them the devil's crowd. And the devil's crowd is there with zero concern. And this is what gets me about these texts. How can another human being demonstrate absolutely no compassion for another human being? Friend, I don't, I don't know if I could watch somebody do this to my greatest enemy. Huh? And here these folk are just dancing around having a good old time at the expense of somebody else. Now look at the devil's crowd here. Notice who was there and who was a part of the devil's crowd. Number one, the soldiers were there and they were just playing a game of chance. Check out what they did. The Bible says in verse number 24, they crucified him and divided his garments among themselves. Here we go. Casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. Here they were at the foot of the cross and they had so little concern for what God was doing. Here they were in the providence of God at the foot of the cross which occupies the central place in all time, history, and eternity. And what were they doing? They were on the floor rolling dice. Good Lord. Playing a game of chance. But can I say to you, if you have grown up in the Bible Belt of the United States where you literally have to stick your head in the sand and take evasive measures to get out from under the preaching of the cross of Jesus Christ, sir, ma'am, you're no better off than those soldiers because you are playing a game of chance with eternity. 
And here they were, playing a game of chance, not worrying about what he was doing on their behalf, but worrying about who could get an old bloody tunic and take it home like it was worth something. Number next, not only was the soldiers there, part of the devil's crowd, playing a game of chance, but the passers-by, check this out. Verse number 29 says, those passing by. There happened to be just some people who, you know, they weren't there gawking. It was just a busy place and there were people traveling. So here were the passers-by. Think of how many people witnessed this event that day. And the passers-by, no telling how many folk are accounted for in that one group, but notice what they were doing. The passers-by were there to simply chuckle at the cross. Look, here's key word. Notice what they said. And they were chuckling, kind of saying, well, isn't this ironic? You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross, laughing at somebody who's being crucified. I I don't know of anything more sacrilegious than what these guys did, was to chuckle and to make sport out of what God was doing at the center of all time, in eternity. But nonetheless, they were there and they were simply chuckling at the cross. But notice also the chief priests were there. And check out what they were doing. The chief priests were there to change the cross. And you know, there's this crowd every day. Matter of fact, there's probably representatives of this crowd maybe even here today. There are folk who have absolutely zero concern for the cross of Jesus Christ and their life demonstrates that. Uh, they're playing a game of chance with their eternity. And some people even laugh at the cross and make derisive comments about it. And there are others who want to change it and make it into something that it really was not in order that they're not accountable to it. And that's what the chief priest did. Notice what it was that the chief priest did. The Bible says in verse 31, in the same way, the chief priest also along with the scribes, here's the religious crowd, were mocking him among themselves, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. No, you would not. Faith never comes through seeing. If it come through seeing, he'd already done enough stuff right there in plain sight for you to believe. So don't believe that they are being now people of integrity for one minute, because he could have come down from the cross and they still would have found some reason to crucify him. But notice, here's why I say they were there to change the cross. John's Gospel, chapter 19, here's what the chief priest did. They saw what Pilate had written on the cross, which back then they would take the charge that the criminal was being condemned for and write it on the cross. If you'd stolen something, he's a thief. If you had killed someone, he's a murderer. Here was what Pilate put on the cross of Jesus Christ, King of the Jews. Well, guess what? That offended the chief priest. They said, oh no, Pilate, you need to get that down and change it. You need to say, this man claims to be the King of the Jews. But Pilate, whom Frederick Nietzsche says is the only man here with any integrity, said, what I have written, I have written. Can I say to you that you cannot change the cross of Jesus Christ? The cross of Jesus Christ represents the only way for a man, woman, boy, or girl to have a relationship with God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You, no one comes to the Father except by me. And you can try to change that. You can just make it one way. You can just make it a good man dying for what he believed. You can do whatever you want to. But the truth stands, the cross is the central theme in all the time and all eternity. And everybody has got to deal with it. You'll deal with it in this life or you'll deal with it in the next. Check out number next, this other crowd who was there. There were some bystanders there as well. Did you see them? Look in verse number 35. When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. Now what were the bystanders doing? Well, the bystanders were there to confuse the cross. I mean, they took what Jesus said in Aramaic and and, and they twisted it into something else, saying that he's calling for Elijah. Now, to their credit, Elijah was considered in those days to be the deliverer of people who were in trouble. So they thought that he was following local superstition and calling for Elijah. 
So they were there to simply confuse the cross. No, 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 no. He wasn't calling for Elijah. This was an intimate moment between him and the Father. And again, Jesus always reverted to his heart language when he was having intimate fellowship with his Father. And I want to tell you, you will too. They ain't to tell you that the hardest thing for us to do in Portuguese is to pray. Because when you, when you are talking with your Father, you naturally revert to your heart language. And here Jesus reverts again to his heart language and he begins to speak Aramaic. And they said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Now notice what they did. And, and, and here's why they did it. Some of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine. They put it on a reed and gave him to drink, saying, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Now here's what they did. That, that mixture that they get, gave him was for pain and it was to prolong his life. Now, were they being, were, were they being uh, a compassionate at that point? Absolutely not. Look what the text says. They gave that to him because they wanted to, them to stay alive as long as he could to give Elijah every opportunity to come and take him down. You know what they were doing? They were looking at the cross with only curiosity. Just curiosity. That's all it was. So they thought they could prolong his life to give Elijah a little bit longer time to make the journey all the way from heaven to Golgotha to deliver this one named Jesus. Check out number next. Bystanders were there to confuse the cross. But there were two thieves, Mark reports, and the other gospel writers as well report, that he was crucified between two thieves in order that the scripture might be fulfilled. He was numbered among the transgressors. Now check out thief number one. Thief number one was there for condemnation. Oh, he was getting what he deserved. He was a thief. But you see, he wasn't just condemned in this life. That old boy was condemned in eternity. Why? Because he was at the cross. And rather than accepting what God was doing on his behalf, what did he decide to do? Well, notice what it is that the Bible says. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. Now how in the world can you do that? Listen, you nail me to a cross and the last thing on my mind is casting insults at the guy who's nailed to a cross next to me. Do you see what I'm saying? Do you see how depraved and how wicked people are? And so I want to tell you, the last thing I'd be doing, I'd be worried about my own predicament rather than being derogatory towards a man who's crucified next to me. My goodness. Now let me take you to Luke's gospel to show you some things that, that Luke reports for us in this very scene right here. Luke chapter number 23. Check this out. Luke chapter 23. And let's start in verse eh, about number 39 is where it picks up. One of the criminals who were hanged there, was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself. And uh, You know folk who, who just want to use Christ for whatever benefit they can get out of Him? Well, here was one of those, one of those thieves. It meant it's my lucky day. If this guy is the Christ, he can save himself and me. Well, he could, but not in the sense you're thinking, dude. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God? Since you were under the same sentence of condemnation, here we go, we indeed are suffering justly and are receiving what we deserve for our, for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Now check this out. Mark tells us in verse number 30, 32 of chapter 15, those, plural, who were crucified with him were insulting him. You know what that tells me? That tells me that both of them started out doing it. But one of them, had a little more spiritual insight than the other. You see, he wasn't there for condemnation. He was there paying for his crime, but he was there for cleansing. Check this out. Something happened. He saw something more than the other guy did who was on the other side. He stopped insulting, and he started seeing the reality of what was taking place just outside of his reach. And notice what Luke tells us again. And his account of this. Verse number uh, 41, 42. 
And he, that is the other chief, the other thief was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Son, does it, is there a statement anywhere in all the Gospels that demonstrates the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus Christ? Because here's a guy crucified next to him who had been insulting him, listening to the other guy insulting. And all of a sudden, truth dawns on him and he says, Man, stop that. Stop it. We are here because we deserve it. This man has done nothing wrong. And I don't know what's going on, but this man is a little bit more than just your average man. And he says to him, remember me when you come into your, into your kingdom. And Jesus looked at a man who was a condemned criminal dying on a cross because that's what he deserved. That was the price of his sin. Who had just been insulting him. And Jesus looks at him from the cross, applies his blood and says today, you and I are going to be in a better place, my man. Just hang on. Wow. Now can I ask you the million dollar question? How come one thief on this side is condemned and one thief on this side is cleansed? And can I say to you, it's the age-old question. How is it that two people in the same place experiencing the same experiences, hearing the same message, one of them is born again and one of them is not. And can I say this to you? The only rational answer is the sovereignty of Almighty God. You see, that guy was there and my goodness, his life had been choreographed leading to that moment. No matter how old he was, no matter what he had done in the past, no matter what plans he had in the future, his entire life hung in the balance as he was on the cross and the most important event in his life was taking place right now. And he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The power of the cross is demonstrated when Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. <laughs> A condemned, crucified, formerly Christ-hating, insulting thief Simple recognition of truth. Can't wait till I get to glory and get to talk to that guy. Huh? Just sit down and have an interview with him. Wouldn't that be cool? I got to run. Check out number next. Thief number two was there for cleansing. The centurion was there. Look in verse number, 29, uh, verse number 39. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. See, the centurion was there for confession. Confession of what? Confession of the truth. Isn't it amazing that here we have an old Roman, a hardened soldier, who when all of his buddies left him and he's left there alone on duty, and it's just him and the cross. All of a sudden, he saw something he'd never seen before. And he realized, man, this guy was the Son of God. Well, what tipped you off, dude? Could it be the fact that out of nowhere, at 12 o'clock midday when the sun straight up overhead, it went as black as night for three hours? <laughs> Could that have something to do with... I mean, doesn't it look like all these mockers and all these insulters, as soon as God turned out the lights... I'd have been rethinking my position, wouldn't you? But it just goes to show you. Hear me. Watch this. Salvation is not logical. And I've got a lot of scholarly buddies right now who are saying things like this. The evangelism of the 21st century is apologetics. I want to say to you, that's nothing but hogwash. The evangelism of the 21st century is just like it was in the 1st century. It's preaching of the cross of Jesus Christ. Ain't no way you can argue somebody into heaven. As a matter of evidence would do it, looks like everybody in Jerusalem that day would have came to faith because God turned out the lights when His Son was performing this great work on Calvary's cross. But this centurion, something happened. And this centurion made a 
confession of faith, he says, surely this man was the Son of God. Number next, there were some women there, verses 40 through 41. And the women were there out of commitment. Now notice what Mark says. There were also some women looking on from a distance, but can I say to you, they may have been from a distance when Mark reports this, but they come closer. You know how I know? Because before Jesus died on the cross, He looked at John and Mary and He said, Woman, behold thy son. And John, behold your mother. They were so close. They were drawn so close that Jesus could speak to them from the cross before He died. Now, they were there out of commitment. And you know, I want to tell you something. Sometimes it takes commitment to keep you somewhere. Did you know that? And do you know what, what, the, what the heart of commitment is? It's love. It's love. It's love. You know, a lot of times we think our problem is commitment. We look around at folk who have a half-hearted relationship with God and church and we say, they just need to be more committed. No, they need to be more in love with God. Because when you love Him, you don't have a problem being committed to Him. And you know, sometimes that's the only thing that will keep you somewhere. For example, how many of you have ever had to stay in the hospital room with a mom or dad or grandma or grandpa or son or daughter when you knew they were dying? I want to tell you, I've been there. And can I say to you that everything within my being says, Richie, let's get the heck out of here. I don't like this. There's nothing about it good. It's killing me on the inside. I got to run. I got to go. But then I look at that person who I love and say, there's no way in God's name I'm leaving you here alone. I'm going to stay here with you to the end. It's me and you. You got it? And that's what them women were doing. They said, we hate this. It's ripping our heart out. But we can't be anywhere else. We can't do anything else. We've got to stay here because that's the man we love. And they stayed right there out of commitment. Hey man, love will cause you to be committed and it'll cause you to do things that you wouldn't normally do. Wouldn't normally think you can do. But out of love, you do it. Check out number next. I got to run. The centrality of the cross is seen in the people who were assembled there. Number two, the centrality of the cross is seen in the purpose that was achieved there. Well, what purpose was achieved there? Well, number one, atonement for sin. Now let me give you the, the plain meaning of that big old fancy theological word, atonement. At-one-ment. What sin had separated in the Garden of Eden, i.e. man and God, the cross brings back together. We were separated. We were enemies. But now the cross brings atonement, at one and brings man and God back together. Now there are several ways to talk about the atonement. Number one, write this down. I left you a little bit of space under there. Write this word down. The atonement was, number one, substitutionary. Substitutionary. And man, there's so many principles in here that teach this. Namely, this guy named Barabbas. Look with me in verse 15. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them and after having Jesus scourged, scourged, handed him over to be crucified. What do you think happened to Barabbas? I wonder. Because here he was who literally and physically Jesus took his place. Died in his place on Calvary's cross. Here's what the atonement was. It was substitutionary. You know what that means? That means Jesus was my substitute. That means I should be there. But He took my place. So now here's what I got to do. By faith, I either accept the price that He paid for me on Calvary's cross or get this, I pay it myself through all eternity. And that's literally the chance. That's literally the dice that people are rolling today. See, so the atonement, number one, was substitutionary. Number two, the atonement was satisfactory. God accepted the payment on your behalf and on my behalf. It's paid in full. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. 
but he washed it white as snow. He said himself, I came to give my life a ransom for many. It was substitutionary, but it was satisfactory. And then I've got to run. What was the purpose that was accomplished on Calvary's cross? The central figure in all of time and eternity. Number one, atonement for sin. But number two, access to God. Check out verse number 38. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Hey, you know how tall that thing was and how thick that thing was? You couldn't hook up team mules and rip that thing. I'm telling you, Mr. Atlas can tear a phone book in half, but there ain't no way you could have ripped that veil. And look, it was left just enough at the bottom to let folk know that it wasn't ripped by a human from the bottom up. It was ripped from the top down. And here's theological significance. Jesus entered into the Holy of Holies. Hey, the veil of the temple, the word for temple here is not just the general word for temple. It's the word for the Holy of Holies. So where did He enter? He entered right into the presence of God. And if He entered into the presence of God, guess who He takes with Him? Son, you have access to God because of what Jesus did on Calvary's cross. You can live in the presence of God. It's always amazing to me that the suffering of Jesus on the cross, the Bible never highlights the physical pain that He went through. It was the spiritual pain. And here was a spiritual pain. My God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? You see, as God, He lived in perfect communion with the Father every moment of His life. These are the first few moments in all of eternity that there's a divide between God the Son and God the Father because He took upon Himself our sin. He became sin for us. Can I show you one more thing? Check this out. L look what it is the Bible says that these soldiers did. The Bible says, verse number 17, they dressed him up in purple and after twisting a crown of thorns. Do you know the theological significance of thorns? Represents the curse. Guess what happened in Genesis chapter 3 right after man had sinned? God said, cursed is the ground. It will bring forth thorns and thistles. And now these Roman soldiers, they knit together, weave together a crown of the curse. And they put the curse on his head. Do you see the theological significance? He is making himself a curse for us so that we may become the righteousness of God. Listen to me. The veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom, sir, ma'am. You have access to God now on the coattail of our high priest, Jesus Christ. It's the only way. You can't clean yourself up good enough. You can't do enough good deeds. The only thing you can do is say, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And hear him say back to you, I tell you this day, you and I will be together in paradise. Access to God. Hey, listen to me. For three hours on a cross, Jesus spent separated from God the Father and it about killed Him. He cries out, My God! My God! Why have you forsaken me? But stop and think about us. We can live outside the presence of God for weeks at a time and never blink an eye. Yea, verily months. Some folks spend their life outside the presence of God and it never bothers them. The Son of God suffered not just the physical pain, but the spiritual pain of being separated from God the Father. Three hours, one Friday on Calvary's cross. Hey, can I say this to you? If you ever live in the presence of God, nothing else will do. Nothing else will do. When we're accustomed to living in His presence, you know immediately when you've sinned because fellowship seems to wane just a little bit. And rather than holding on to sin, you say, My God, my God, I've got to get rid of this in order that I can gain your presence in my life forever and ever. Here's what the cross was about. Mark it down. Calvary's cross was simply this. It's the gracious acts of God the Father in sending God the Son to atone for your sin so that you might receive God the Spirit 
and live in His presence forever and ever. Have you ever thought about this? When He ripped the veil of that temple, it wasn't just to let man in, it was to let God out. And now He can invade your world when the blood of Christ on Calvary's cross is applied to you by substitutionary atonement. Now you're clean. You're clean. You're clean. And a holy God who can have nothing to do with sin, now all of a sudden because you're clean, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, invades your life. He changes your future and He changes your family for His glory. Hey, listen, we've got to deal with this thing called the cross. Every one of us. And it's better to do it now rather than have to do it then. Would you stand with me, please? Father in heaven, this subject of the cross just absolutely mystifies us. How God can become flesh, take our place, take the curse upon Himself, and die on Calvary's cross is just too much for our finite minds to take in. God, all we can do is confess simple faith and say, God... We're so grateful that you redeemed us, that you have made the way for us to live in your presence and for you to invade our lives. So I pray for those who are here today, God, that they have never placed their faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on their behalf on Calvary's cross. And the reality is, God, we'll either accept the payment you made on our behalf or we're going to pay it ourselves throughout all eternity. So I pray for those whom God, just like this crowd of people that were at the cross that day, none of them were there by happenstance or coincidence, but you choreographed the movements of their life so that they would be there that day. And I believe, God, you've choreographed the movements of people's lives in this place today for them to be here to hear the story of the old rugged cross. God, may this be today they repent of their sin and place their faith in you so that one day they can be with you in paradise. So God, by your sovereignty, would you draw those to yourself whom you're calling? And we pray it in Jesus' name. I'll be up here on the front row. Dr. John Wilson is up here on the front row.